0: Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history, research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 155. It is good to be back at the microphone after a lot of traveling to conferences and seminars across the US and in Canada. There are Are a lot more to come, but let me say a big welcome to all of you that are new to the show. I met a lot of new listeners at the Ohio Genealogical Society Conference in Cincinnati, the Alberta Genealogical Society Conference in Edmonton, Canada, at the full day seminar we did in Germantown, just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, in balmy Lakeland, Florida, and most recently in Las Vegas at the NGS Conference. And a lot has been happening in the genealogy world while I've been on the road, and my job is to boil it down so I can bring you the best genealogy gems to make the best use of your time, and that's what we're going to do in today's show. So first off, if you didn't make it out to Salt Lake City for the huge RootsTech conference, and I do mean huge (laughs) – Don't fret because they have lots of video recordings online for you, including a panel that I participated in uh, where the topic was the future of genealogy. Now, if you've ever wondered what's coming down the pike and what some of the leaders in the genealogy community would like to see come down the pike, I think you'll enjoy this one-hour video session. Uh, I was joined up on stage by Dick Eastman, Dear Myrtle, Daniel Horowitz of My Heritage, Josh Taylor of Bright Solid, and Alan Phillips of Unlock the Past Cruises, and of course Thomas McKenty was our moderator. And while it was really a tall order to get up there on stage and try to foresee the future, we had a lot of fun trying. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing what you think is out there on the horizon for genealogy and what you'd like to see on the horizon for genealogy. Um, drop me a line at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com and we will share some of those ideas on an upcoming episode. And in the show notes for this episode, I'm going to have a link for you to get you over to that video if you'd like to take a look to see what we kind of predicted for the future. And if you'd like to hear more about what went on at RootsTech, Head to the show notes again, and I have a link to a recap there that was written by our own Sunny Morton. She's a contributing editor here at Genealogy Gems. She gives you kind of an overview of some of the things that were going on. It was really busy, so we didn't do a lot of blogging during the conference, but if you check out the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel, you'll find a series of videos that I was uh, filming while there at Ritz Tech, and you'll get to hear from a lot of the wonderful speakers that were there and some of the great. Great ideas that were uh, going on, and as you know, RootsTech is sponsored by FamilySearch, and they've been releasing a lot of updates lately on their digitized projects. There are new digitized images for Australia, Austria, China, England, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, the U.S. In fact. Sometimes I think it would be faster just to announce the countries that they're not digitizing records, (laughs) because I don't think there are very many. They are really going global in their digitization efforts. You can browse the latest list by having the links in the show notes for this episode number 155. Now, if you have British roots, you will want to check out the new collection available on findmypast.com. They have a half a million criminal records dating from 1770 to 1934. This sounds like a pretty gripping collection, whether you've got British roots or not. It contains records like mugshots, court documents, appeal letters and registers from prison ships, which were used when mainland prisons were overcrowded. Can you imagine? Now, according to FindMyPast.com, the records provide a wide variety of color detail and fascinating social history, chronicling the fate of criminals ranging from fraudsters, counterfeiters, thieves and murderers and their victims. The 500,000 records that you can now search are only a fifth of the collection of 2.5 million records that will be coming online soon. The company calls this the largest collection of historical criminal records from England and Wales to be published online and is done in association with the National Archives UK. FindMyPast.com members can access the criminal collection directly, make sure the uh, box for institutes and organizations is checked in order to get to that. And here's a little more background on connections between British convicts and the US and Australia. You know, during colonial times, Britain often punished criminals by forcing them to immigrate. The most famous destination, of course, was Australia. The first British settlement on that continent was in 1787, and it was actually a penal colony. Australia celebrates that fact about its heritage, uh, and you can learn more about that in a link in the show notes. And up to about 50,000 British convicts were also forced to emigrate to the American colonies during the 1700s, and these included prisoners of war from Ireland and Scotland. And you can read more about that in a paperback book called Bound for America, the Transportation of British Convicts to the Colonies, 1718 to 1775. That's by A. Roger Ekirk. I hope I'm saying his last name right. Um, again, I'll have a link for you to that in the show notes. Findmypast.com isn't able to tell us yet how many of the records in the criminal collection are actually related to forced immigrations, but anyone with roots in the UK should certainly check out this collection for sure. And over at Fold3, they have digitized War of 1812 pension files. According to the National Archives, pension files for the War of 1812 rate among their most requested materials, but the files haven't been very easy to use because they're only at the National Archives. They haven't been available in published microfilm or digitized form. You've either had to research the pension files on site in Washington, D.C. if you could get there, or order copies from the archives. Not exactly easy access. Well, this is all about to change. The Federation of Genealogical Societies, which is known as FGS, the National Archives, Ancestry.com, and Fold3, they're all partnering together in a huge effort to preserve and digitize 7.2 million pages of War of 1812 pension records and make them available for free online. As you can imagine, this is a mammoth undertaking, and it commemorates the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, which has been called America's Second Revolution. Many U.S. citizens joined the fight against the British Empire to permanently resolve issues that the Revolutionary War was fought over. It's a near-legendary era in U.S. history, when, you know, of course, the Star-Spangled Banner was penned during the defense of Baltimore's Fort McHenry, and, of course, the White House was burned during the only foreign occupation of Washington, D.C., The pension files are already being digitized and completed images and their associated indexes are being posted incrementally. Now you can view these for free at full3.com. Follow the progress of this enormous undertaking at FGS's Preserve the Pensions blog where you'll see updates and get inspired by research success stories. You can commemorate the War of 1812's anniversary yourself by looking there for your ancestors who may have served. Now, many of us have been anticipating the return of Who Do You Think You Are, the popular family history-themed television show. After three seasons, Who Do You Think You Are was canceled in the U.S. by NBC. That was in 2012. Well, reportedly, the Learning Channel has since picked up the show for a fourth season, great news executive producer lisa kudrow who's been a guest here on the podcast told craig ferguson that the show is still moving forward she did that in an appearance on the late late show on february 20th and in recent weeks reports have circulated that uh, kelly clarkson has filmed an episode uh, a fan reported seeing her in Americus, georgia and that they were shooting footage at andersonville national historic site But, of course, the U.S. is not the only or even the first to produce Who Do You Think You Are on television. The brand has spread worldwide, and now newspapers are reporting that the Danish Broadcasting Corporation is filming its own version of Who Do You Think You Are. According to the Bureau County Republican and the News Tribune in Illinois Valley, popular Danish actress Suzanne, and I'm not even sure if I can say her last name here, Bieris? Oh, I know I have Danish listeners. You guys would know. (laughs) She was in the area filming stories of her great-great-grandparents, and they had immigrated from Denmark to the American Midwest in 1869, and they apparently left behind one of their six children from, from whom she descends. As part of her whirlwind family history tour, um, she reportedly visited the Danish Immigrant Museum. It's in Elkhorn, Iowa. If you have Danish roots, you should probably check out their website. Uh, They have a family history and genealogy center, which specializes in helping people find links to their Danish immigrant past. And they provide research and translation services, and they've helped people connect with long-lost relatives in both Denmark and the U.S., You can find that at danishmuseum.org. So, for those of you in Denmark, and again, I know I've got some Danish listeners out there, you can look forward to that TV series coming to you soon. And speaking of who do you think you are, at the upcoming Southern California Genealogical Society Jamboree, being held in Burbank, California, June 7th through the 9th of 2013, I'm going to be part of a special banquet event on Friday night. Called Behind the Scenes with Who Do You Think You Are? You're going to get a peek behind the scenes with a key member of the production team. Her name is Alexandra Orton, she's the producer and research manager for the show. Um, She's a graduate of University of Southern California, and she began work as a researcher on the first season of Who Do You Think You Are in 2008. Um, She's currently a producer and research manager for the series. She oversees research development, coordinating communication between Ancestry.com and the research staff, and shepherding the stories to completion. And I believe two of Allie's co-workers are also going to be attending this banquet as well. I am delighted because I am going to be the moderator for a great question and answer segment with Allie. This is your opportunity to um, ask questions about what goes on behind the scenes at Who Do You Think You Are and what is coming up in the new season. So to learn more about that, head on over to scgsgenealogy.com and look for um, Jamboree 2013, their special events page. And you can actually send in your questions in advance so that I can pose those to the Who Do You Think You Are team. Send your questions to jamboree at scgsgenealogy.com. That is going to be a Fun event! I can't wait. And of course, I'm going to be there um, teaching classes as well. If you make it to Jamboree, I tell you, it's one of the most hopping fun conferences of the year. And it has certainly become um, a very respected, well-known national event. Again, it's June 7th through the 9th, 2013. And actually, the first day, they're having a pre-event. On the 6th of June, they are having their family history and DNA event. And boy, have they lined up some amazing speakers. Stephen Wells, Henry and Louis Gates, it's all about DNA and genetic genealogy. This is your chance if you have thought about dabbling in that and, and adding that to your family history repertoire. And um, as far as my classes go, let's see here. I'll be teaching uh, Turn Your iPad into a Genealogy Powerhouse at 1.30 on Friday the 7th, as well as on Saturday the 8th, I'm going to be teaching... Google search strategies for common surnames, as well as we're gonna. Oh my gosh, we're gonna have so much fun! At two o'clock, we are gonna do the Google Earth military game show. This is especially put together for Jamboree and their military theme for this year's conference. And we're gonna be picking teams, giving out prizes, answering questions. Everybody's gonna be learning about military genealogy research, and uh, it's gonna be a ton of fun. We we have fun at Jamboree, that's for sure. <laughs> And uh, it looks like on Friday, June 9th, which is my anniversary as well, and my hubby is going to be with me this year at Jamboree, I think right around 1245. You'll have to check the schedule when you get there but we are in the process of putting together a special demo. This is going to be probably about an hour and a half, and it's going to be all about using Google Earth for genealogy. Um, If you want to sit down and spend some time with me at Jamboree, this is the place to do it. We're going to do it, like I say, around 1245 in the demo area, which is in the main lobby area of the conference hall. And... uh, going through some uh, really cool projects, talking about time travel on Google Earth, and how to set up your um, images and videos and placemarks and tell your family history story, as well as uh, solve some family history mysteries with Google Earth. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is a very special event that we're putting together on Sunday, June 9th. Now, switching gears, let's talk about church records. There are some church records coming online at archives.com, which of course is now um, under the parent company of Ancestry.com. About 4.6 million genealogical records from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, it's known as the ELCA, they're now available on archives.com. This is pretty great. The project represents a pretty unique collection for archives, and they've partnered together with the ELCA archives to digitize and index about 1,000 rolls of microfilmed records. Now, according to the company, this collection represents records that have never been online before, Uh, It eliminates the major barriers we usually have in researching church records, you know, not knowing which specific congregation an ancestor attended, uh, not knowing where those records are now, and not having easy access to them. According to the company's recent press release, uh, the records in these collections date from mid-1800s through 1940. They're going to include births, baptisms, confirmations, marriages, deaths, and burials. Details vary from church to church, of course, but often include the parents' name, dates and places of the event, and other biographical details. Many of the churches were founded by immigrants from Norway, Sweden, and Germany, and had immigrant families as their members. I was pretty curious to see what I could find in that collection on my own family, and you can imagine how thrilled I was when I found a record it is the birth and uh, baptism record of my grandmother, Alfreda Sporowski. That was her maiden name at the time that she was born. It changed over time and uh, was kind of Americanized, if you will. But uh, she was born in Gillespie, Illinois in 1913. And it's, it's fascinating because I remember writing a letter to that church years ago, I can't tell you how many years ago, and getting a letter back in reply, and they were wonderful. The church there in Gillespie wrote out the information that had been in the original book and sent it to me, but now, right from my own computer screen, I'm looking at that original document in just seconds, pulling it up on my own screen, printing it out, it's pretty wonderful. So they've, things have come a long way. And uh, you can check it out. You know, if you're not a member of archives.com, not sure if you, if you want to join, you can sign up for a free seven-day trial membership. And that might be a way to get in there and explore these records. Okay, well, that is a ton of genealogy uh, news, some of the highlights of what's been going on recently. But, of course, the other highlight for me is hearing from you. And we're going to be doing that next in the mailbox.
1: letter from my old hometown, one with some jokes from my old pal Jim Brown. Bring me a letter from that girl of mine, saying that he's longing for me all the time. Bring me a letter from my proud old dad know that we are winning and I bet he's glad but more than any other
0: Okay, we've got a mix of questions and comments here in the mailbox. And we're going to start off with Lee, who has some questions. And um, perhaps you have the same. Lee asks, how often do the premium podcasts come out? Well, typically, there is one new premium episode and one new premium video each month. Um, And the real value in premium membership is that when you join you get the entire back catalog of premium podcast episodes and videos. And that means as soon as you become a member, you have access to, I think right now we're over 95 exclusive premium episodes and um, over a dozen videos of my most popular classes. And of course, we're adding to that catalog all the time. And then Lee asks, does the premium version cover different materials than the free version or the same topics, but more in depth? Well, premium podcast episodes are commercial-free, first and foremost, and they're very similar in format to this free show, um, although the material that I cover is different. We do tend to go a little more in-depth, and um, I tend to focus also on what my premium members are asking in terms of questions and what they would like to hear more about. So if you like the free podcast, I think you're going to love the premium show because it's just more of those genealogy gems. And the next question here is, is it possible to buy one episode of Premium to try it out before subscribing for the full year? Well, actually, the free podcast is kind of the free trial for Premium. Um, because really, this is the, the format and this is the opportunity so everybody gets a chance to listen to the free show. Um, and like I say, if you're enjoying the free podcast, you're just going to get more of the same. And and that's kind of your free trial for checking out Premium. Lee goes on to say, while searching the iPad app store for anything new in genealogy, I see there is a paid app for Genealogy Gems. Is this just for listening to the podcast? Is the price one time for each episode? Or have I discovered something new that you are about to tell us about? Uh, Good question. Okay, so I know for some of the magazine... Apps that you get. You get the app, but then you're purchasing magazines inside the app. They call them in-app purchases. That's not how the podcast app works. Um, We've actually had it out about four years now, and it's a one-time purchase. It's $2.99. And that basically helps us cover the cost of um, producing it and keeping it updated. And it what it does for you is it conveniently streams the free podcast all of the episodes, and it streams them right onto your mobile device. But also, the unique feature in the app um, is the bonus feature. And every so often, you'll find that um, a free episode that comes out also has a unique short video or audio or some images, or sometimes we have PDF uh, handouts, um, bonus features that kind of go along with that particular episode. And those are unique to the app, so they're exclusive to the app users. And of course, also in the app, you just have that easy access to the website, to sending me emails, checking Twitter accounts, all of that kind of interactive stuff. So I think a lot of people find that it's just a super convenient way to listen to it on your phone or your mobile device, your iPad, and then also get those special exclusive bonus features. Lee also says, I am fortunate to have a grandparent on each side of my family who was interested in genealogy. So I had a head start in my research. I just wish I had gotten interested 40 years ago when they were still with us. But there is a lot to learn and new cousins and ancestors are being found plus the ever-present brick walls to be scaled. Uh, well, you know, Lee, better late than never, right? And uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and asking some great questions. I'm sure other people out there had similar questions, so I hope I've cleared some of that up for y'all. And let's see here. Joyce wrote in, asked about region-locked video. It says, uh, is it possible to watch the UK version of Who Do You Think You Are online? If so, I want to. I need to attend their conference one of these days also. Looks like you had a blast. Well, I absolutely had a blast, Joyce. Uh, She's talking about the Who Do You Think You Are live conference that they hold in London each year. It it is a fantastic event if you ever get a chance to attend that. Uh, It's worth doing. Now, unfortunately, the UK version is not available um, outside of the UK online. You can't go to their website and watch it if you're outside the UK Uh, a lot of television video providers do what's called region locking which is what Joyce is asking about. However, if you are really determined to watch the UK version outside of the UK, a quick Google search can uncover some workaround. I'm going to have a link in the show notes to an article that will tell you more about how to do that. And um, the BBC website itself that runs Who Do You Think You Are, they currently have what's called the BBC iPlayer TV programs are available to play in the UK only, but all the BBC iPlayer radio programs um, can be listened to. I don't know if they're going to eventually do that for outside of the UK, but as I understand it, I think that there's even a fee uh, involved in watching some of those shows. So there is the BBC iPlayer, and I know it's been evolving over time, so you can keep an eye on that. And one more option you know, occasionally. Folks do upload episodes to YouTube. And I'll have a link in the show notes to one of those, but you have to watch for those pretty quickly. You might want to put up a Google Alert for um, the Who Do You Think You Are UK episodes because sometimes they do get removed due to copyright infringement, but um, certainly that hasn't stopped a lot of people from putting them online. So you might be able to catch one on YouTube if you get lucky. And next, I love that you guys are getting out there and blogging. There are some new genealogy blogs out on the web. Let's see. My first email here comes from Matt Mapes. He says, I love your show and I look forward to every episode. I've been researching for close to 20 years now, but because of podcasts, blogs, and all the other electronic communications that have come along with the internet, I feel more connected and involved in the genealogy community than ever. I want to thank you for always encouraging us to start our own blog. Yes, I'm glad you're doing that, Matt. He says, I finally made that jump yesterday. My daughter, who is only 11 and has her own blog about doll crafts, has also been encouraging me. So I thought I would better get with the program. You can check it out at thepastobsession.blogspot.com. He says, I can't promise anything about how often I'll post, but I do appreciate the encouragement you always provide to your listeners. And he also gave me the link to his daughter's adorable blog where she talks about uh, doll collecting and doll crafts, and that's at Carrot and Claire. Dot blogspot.com. So I will have those in the show notes. Congratulations, Matt, for getting going. That's the hardest part. That's the good news. <laughs> now you can just have fun and get out there and um, and just talk about your family. And of course, by doing that, all of that is available and searchable on Google, which means you can um, help bring those distant cousins you may not know who are searching on those same families to your blog and make those connections I mean we hear about those stories all the time so congratulations on that looks great and Amanda has a new blog she says I've been catching up on all the Genealogy Gems podcasts for the last month I sometimes hear your voice when I don't have my headphones in Ooh. <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> anyway she says I just recently became a premium member thank you and welcome on board and she says I'm working my way through those podcast videos to catch up I just wanted to write to say thank you for doing what you do. I can really tell when I listen that you love what you're doing. That I do, Amanda, and and thank you. I'm glad that comes across. She says, I've been working on our family tree since 2003 or so, but only in the last year have I gotten serious about it. And only after I started listening to you have I realized about sources. So I now have a tree with over 13,000 people in it, and most of it isn't sourced. I wanted to let you know that I've started a genealogy blog mostly so I can go back and source everything from the beginning. I've had a blog in the past just about my kids and other general stuff, but I never kept it going. I'm already thinking differently about this one because of all the possibilities there are. The address is Feaser, it's F E E S E R Family Genealogy dot I hope you'll check it out and I did. It looks great, Amanda. Congratulations. She says it's about more than just the Feaser line of our family but since that's my last name now, that's what I used for the title. Just after my very first post, some of my first cousins who I talk to a lot let me know about some pictures and information that they have and one of my cousins even has a recording of our great grandmother that she did when she was younger. She's the oldest cousin. Wow, that's Amazing! That's fantastic. She says, "Well, I just want to say thanks and let you know about the blog, Amanda Feaser." Well, it looks wonderful, Amanda, and isn't that amazing? You know, you talk to these folks in our family all the time, and they know you're doing family history research, but it just takes something new to kind of to kind of uh, jostle them into realizing, "Oh, I have these pictures. Oh, I have this recording." I mean, thank goodness, you know, bless them that they they brought it to you and shared it with you, and I'm. I'm really thrilled that the blog kind of helped to facilitate that. That's really cool. And Linda, and Linda, I apologize. I'm not quite sure how to say your your name, but it says Huska. I I think I've got that right. Linda Huska Tully. She says, I've been a faithful listener to Genealogy Gems since the beginning and have enjoyed your stories, insights, and how-tos. You have a gift for expressing the joys of learning about our family history, not to mention a contagious laugh. Well, yes, I do. I love to laugh. (laughs) So I'm glad you find it contagious, not annoying. She says, your podcasts have kept me company on walks, while doing chores, even while waiting in line. On a warm June afternoon a couple of years ago, I found myself doing just that, listening to your podcasts on immigration records and taking copious notes as I stood in line for several hours at the Palo Alto Apple store waiting to early adopt my first iPhone oh I know that store well I think I bought my iPad there I'm not because that's not far from the Stanford University theater which is fabulous I like to go there and see uh, silent films okay sorry Linda I digressed. she says some hours later I logged on to Ancestry.com to search for my elusive Italian oh gosh here's another name okay I'll spell it for you S C-H-I-A-V-O-N-E Scavone Family, I hope that's close. Using your tips. What a surprise when I found my great-grandfather Vito and his oldest son, Pascal, in the Ellis Island records. Your tips on how to read the ship's records led me to Pascal's petition for immigration and to do so much more. The brick wall... I had been trying to penetrate for so many years came crashing down that night. Oh my gosh, standing in line at the Apple store, her brick wall crashes. Isn't that awesome? She said, it seemed as though my ancestors had been waiting for this moment and I couldn't believe how one record led to another and another until I found 32 ancestors and collateral relatives on that night alone. You know, it may sound strange to say this, but it felt as though they would not let me go. They wanted to be found. When I finally tumbled into bed at 5 a.m., my sweet and very understanding husband asked me why I had stayed up for so long. I could hardly begin to tell him because I was still crying tears of joy. Not long after that, I reconnected with a cousin I had lost touch with and since then made new connections with long-lost cousins I had never known from this side of the family. One lives right here in Northern California and we've grown quite close. It turned out the other cousin remembered my grandfather, Scivoni. He had invited her family to stay at our home. While our family was away on vacation, she actually rode my tricycle and played in my sandbox. Can you believe what a small world? And all of this thanks to you. I don't know. I don't know if I can take credit for all that, but I'm sure happy to have helped. It sounds like you did an amazing job tracking this down. She says, unfortunately, this cousin, whose name was also Lisa, passed away just last year. But I feel so blessed to have met her and to have made the other connections who I will always treasure. By the way, I want to echo your enthusiasm for the rewards of blogging about family history. It's so much fun, not to mention a great way to record family history for our children and for those who are searching for their roots. But there are other rewards too, in that searching and writing about our families allows us the opportunity to really reflect on their lives and understand them better this can in turn sometimes lead to some wonderful discoveries that we may not have made if we hadn't reflected on their stories in this way. I invite you to visit my blog called Many Branches One Tree and the address here is manybranchesonetree.blogspot.com well and she ends with some very nice comments thank you so much, oh my gosh I mean Linda, what an amazing riveting story and I, I can't agree with you more about those added benefits in blogging. And and I know for those of you who haven't kind of tried your hand at it, um, it, it may sound kind of intimidating, but it's really what she's talking about is really just writing a narrative. And, you know, professional genealogists and people who, who really do this for a living and, and do it well, they write narratives. It seems time-consuming. You might not feel like you're a writer, but something very, she's right, something very special happens when you sit down and attempt to um, write out the story and write out your findings in a narrative format because what happens is all of a sudden some of those blank spots kind of pop out at you and you realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't know the answer to that and oh, there's this piece missing or there's this time frame on the timeline that I really haven't fleshed out. It, It really reveals to you kind of what's missing but it also weaves together individual documents. We spend so much time at our desk holding different documents and looking at individual items. But when we write a narrative or also, you know, for example, put it together in a family history tour using Google Earth, which is something, of course, we talk about here on the show all the time. I have my my DVD series that teaches you how to do that. What happens is that um, you get this big picture, this overview look at all of the research you've been doing. Um, there aren't too many things that we do in our research that really give us that big picture, um, because so often we're handling individual documents and sources. But it's critical; it's critical to genealogy success, and I just think it's so rewarding. And certainly, Linda makes the case for how rewarding it is. Um, I encourage you to go check out her blog, and oh my gosh, all the other blogs that, that folks have been writing in and telling us about. Because I hope I, I think it will inspire you. To to see what people are doing, to see that you don't have to be a professional writer in order to have this be a fulfilling experience, a connecting experience with your your relatives, and of course, um, a wonderful analysis tool in terms of your research. And last but not least, I heard from Bill Jessup. He says, I thought you'd like to hear about another blog you inspired. I created a website dedicated to the Jessup family history back in 1997. It holds just the facts and covers the many spellings of the name. This is my father's page, so you can see what I mean. And he sent me a link to the website at Jessup.com. He says, as I found information, I created pages. So the site layout is not in the more traditional tree style as many pages simply have no links yet. I developed my own database to create the pages and interpage links. I use Roots Magic for just my line now and personal historian to write the first few chapters of the blog. I created a blog in 2010, mainly as a place to talk about roadblocks, etc. It never really seemed to have a true purpose. Since I got the genealogy bug, I had the dream that I would write down the Jessup story. As you know, the research is never over, so no book could start, as each time I started I had questions with no answers. My Jessup line arrived in Australia on the 29th of September, 1854, and I suddenly realized that in 2014, our line will have been down under for 160 years. Now that is something to get excited about and provided a starting point for the story. The blog also allows the story to start and get added to with the help of others. This gave it the purpose it had been missing. The about page has more information, and that's at jessup, which is j e s s e p dot com slash blog slash about the story about the voyage from Liverpool still gives me goosebumps. I hope you get time to read it and enjoy this story well bill the blog looks wonderful and again his address is jessep j-e-s-s-e-p dot com slash blog and bill makes a really another really good point oh my gosh so many great reasons to blog right another really good point is that uh you know our hesitancy into writing the book if you will is oh my gosh i'm not ready I don't have all the information. Or you start writing and you realize, oh my, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff here I need to stop. Or what if I find something later and I've already published this book? The blog gives you that kind of ongoing writing opportunity and recording opportunity, if you will, to go along with your research. You can start now. You can start now with the advantages of recording this information, getting it out to the, the other folks all the benefits that go along with that and you don't have to wait until you're ready or done because you know what? He's right. We're never ready and we're never done. So uh, I encourage you to check out all of these wonderful blogs and I'm uh, so proud of all of you. I just think this is really cool and I love reading these blogs. Thanks so much for sharing. The year 2013, I had a chance to interview Chris Witten. He's the founder of WikiTree. I did that for the Family Tree Magazine podcast. And after we got done doing that segment, he started to tell me about a new feature they were adding to the website called Jed Matches. So I took the opportunity to turn the microphone back on and get him to tell us more about it. And of course, Jed Matches has been out for a little while now. You may have heard about it, but not sure what it's all about, here's Chris Witten to tell us about WikiTree and their new GEDmatches tool. We just turned off the recorder for the Family Tree Magazine podcast, but I flipped the switch back on because I'm here talking with Chris Witten from WikiTree.com and wanted to share some some additional information here at Genealogy Gems about what's going on at WikiTree. Hey, Chris. Hey, Lisa. So, you were uh, starting to tell me about Gen Matches, and I went, Whoa, 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 we got to share this with my Genealogy Gems listeners. Tell us what's going on at WikiTree.
2: Well, if, if your listeners will forgive me for a moment while I sort of give some background on this, because um, I think the serious genealogists will appreciate this. This is this new feature that we've been working on a long time. It's called Jed Matches for GEDCOMs. This is a real problem on collaborative trees is people uploading JEDCOMs. You know, we we need to enable it. It's such a great way for serious genealogists to jumpstart their participation is you know by uploading a JEDCOM so that they can automatically create some profiles, you know, rather than re-entering all this data that they have in another system. So it's really important. We've had you know JEDCOM uploads on WikiTree for years now. But it's a problem where you know you allow somebody to, you know, upload a JEDCOM. But maybe, you know, it's always somebody who's just getting started because it's the first thing a new member wants to do is upload a GEDCOM. So it's always somebody that's just getting started on the site. And, you know, they might decide that they don't, you know, really want to participate or they don't want to participate on the level that it would require. Because WikiTree is completely collaborative, it's all about collaborative, all about sharing. And because it's a shared family tree where there's only one profile for every ancestor – If you upload 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 ancestors through a GEDCOM, you're actually going to be the profile manager on all those profiles, and the burden of collaboration, uh, as you will soon discover, will become overwhelming. Like, you will get so many distant cousins who want to collaborate on those profiles, so many merge requests, trusted list requests, personal messages, um, that if you're not, you know, committed to spending hours a week or even in some cases hours a day on WikiTree, it's a problem for the rest of the community because here's this profile, this ancestor that you started, but you're not able to fully collaborate on. So this, you know, has been a problem for WikiTree, of course, since the beginning, And the solution that we are about to release, you know, really what it's like what I should be working on now today uh, is is putting the polishing touches on this is a system where you can upload a GEDCOM and anybody will be able to do this. You won't even have to be a WikiTree member. You can just register as a guest, upload your GEDCOM. It's going to do a full search on, you know, the 4 million profiles currently on the tree and see if any of those ancestors already exist. So it'll be this great search mechanism, you know, I mean, even um, for people who don't want to participate, don't want to collaborate on WikiTree, they're not so sure about the collaborative model, you know, whether they want to share at this level, they can just upload their GEDCOM and do that search just to see if any of their distant cousins are already collaborating on WikiTree or see if there's some information on there that they don't already have. And, you know, rather than typing in a thousand names, they'll be able to upload their GEDCOM. It'll automatically do the search Hopefully, within a few hours, we think it'll be within a few hours, it'll prepare a nice report for you, and then you can go through all the matches. And for people that do want to continue, you know, if this is being used by a new member or an existing member of WikiTree, they'll be able to then match and select which ancestors, which people from that GEDCOM they want to import. So instead of being an all or nothing kind of thing, like in the past, you know, when a member wanted to upload, they either had to split that file elsewhere and then upload a piece of it here if some of the tree already existed. You know, there was no way just to import a piece of a GEDCOM. So this is going to enable them to do the matches and then on that same form, select, you know, this person is the same, this person isn't, and then automatically have the people that already exist excluded. And have this nice little report that outputs afterwards so that they can, you know, go ahead and get right into the collaboration on the people that do already exist. So, super cool tool. I'm so excited to uh, to finally have this ready.
0: Wonderful. So, really, what you're saying is, is that we're going to be able to select who we want to focus on. This could come in really handy if you don't want to tackle your entire tree, but you really want to focus on particular lines, I would guess.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting for people who you know want to make sure their ancestors, you know, research that they've done um, does get preserved. You know, that's a you know big concern for genealogists is just making sure that that the work they've done doesn't get lost after they're no longer able to maintain it. Um, So if there's like a certain line that you've worked on and you want to make sure that it is on a site like Wikitree, just like you say, this is a way that they're going to be able to select that line. Even if it's just mixed in with all the other profiles in their GEDCOM, they can just select that line uh, through this new GEDmatches tool.
0: Now you talked about people um, managing the, the various ancestors. Talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's an important concept. And and of course one of the questions becomes if if somebody's kind of the the manager of a particular person, what happens when that person's no longer involved in WikiTree?
2: Yeah, those are tough questions. So so the profile manager concept, generally that's the creator of a profile or the person who's most concerned with it. And there can be multiple managers of a single profile. You know, so if you import, you know, or create you know, a dozen, a hundred individual profiles, you're you will by default be the manager. Um sometimes what'll happen is, you know, you're creating profiles of, you know, aunts or or these collateral relatives where maybe, you know, you've then got a cousin who joins WikiTree or is already on WikiTree. It might make sense for for you to change the manager of those profiles, you know, either when they join or or when you merge profiles, have that cousin come the manager. Uh, we do have problems with, you know, sometimes a manager will become unresponsive. You know, we have unfortunately had many cases where um, members have passed away, mm-hmm. and else that they were managing. Then we needed to to find another solution for. Because WikiTree has so much private information, you know, I I don't know if this is clear to everybody listening, but so WikiTree is a is a shared family tree concept, worldwide family tree that has privacy controls. So it's designed for modern family history as well as distant ancestry. So the privacy is a really important part of it. Just to answer your question, so if somebody you know has a lot of family members that they've added to Wiki, but there is no other family member, you know, no other trusted family member who can take over management, you know, sometimes then we do have to delete profiles um, because really, you know, there's just no other choice when it comes to privacy.
0: So you would be deleting uh, some particularly a living person who had privacy concerns around their profile. What about in terms of uh, an ancestor, a deceased person where the profile manager, like you say, becomes non-responsive, maybe passes away or is just no longer involved in, in genealogy?
2: Well, our procedure depends on the privacy level. okay. We have these six privacy levels, you know, anything from completely unlisted to completely open. So if a profile is public or open, and these are the two highest privacy levels, or I should say more open, most open privacy levels. If, if a profile is public and the profile manager, you know, decides to quit using WikiTree, can't use it, can't continue for whatever reason, then those profiles can be adopted by anybody. You know, they were already open and visible, to anybody and and what a manager does on an open profile is very different than what a manager does on say you know a private or an unlisted profile of a very modern person you know when you're talking about a very distant ancestor the profiles have to be very loosely managed to begin with Mm -hmm. who gets to manage the profile of you know king edward the first or whatever it's like (laughs) it, it gets contentious sometimes and and The point, really, that I'm trying to make is just that those profiles can't be tightly managed. It it is a wiki. It's a collaborative community. We're all sharing the same profiles. So just to answer that question, then, that, yeah, if, if somebody leaves WikiTree and profiles that they were managing are public or private, those stay on WikiTree. They're just opened up. If there are private profiles that we can't find another manager for, and that would be somebody that, you know, was already on the trusted list, then those just have to be deleted
0: well it sounds like jed matches is going to be um a big boon to users of wiki tree and uh you know i i asked you off off the air but i'll ask you here you know is this a full time job for you because it sounds like jed matches has been a big project for you
2: Yes. Yeah. Everybody else on WikiTree uh, is either part-time or volunteer. And, and really, WikiTree is about the community. It's, um, and that's all volunteer. But I am the one full-time person. I am the one person who, who dedicates his entire life to WikiTree. <laughs>
0: And it's wonderful because it is, it's is—it's a free site. It's one that people can join as a guest and, and then get more involved from there. And I'm assuming you must be ad-supported, something so that that kind of keeps it maintained. Because that's, you know, people often talk about, oh, everything in genealogy should be free. But in reality, if we want things to stick around, we've got to find ways to uh, finance them, don't we?
2: Exactly. I mean, running an inter- internet site, you know, has a lot of expenses, especially because a genealogy site, is managing a lot of data, a lot of information on the servers, and if you want it accessible, it has to be—you know—they have to be fast servers. So there are a lot of expenses. And yes, you know, our model is not to have paid members. It's the serious members of Wikitree who are who are creating it, who are contributing to what this project is. So the idea of charging them for membership is is kind of crazy to me. We don't even show advertisements to members. Uh, if you 're a wiki genealogist member, which effectively means like a contributing member of Wikitree, when you 're on the site you don 't see ads, but those public profiles when other people are just coming in through Google, they will see the advertisements so that 's what covers the costs that 's what enables it to be free for all the members is because those public profiles are seen with ads and not real obnoxious ads because that would sort of you know defeat the purpose of having good accessible family tree content. There are ads. Uh, They do cover the costs so that we can, you know, afford to be free for everybody.
0: Makes good sense. And as you said, it it means your WikiTree is searchable by Google, which is huge because we want people to find these ancestors we put out there so we can make connections. But how nice that you've been able to put together a way that for those contributing members that it's it's free and they can really dig in and and make good use of, of all the connections that might come out of participating in WikiTree.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, thank you for telling us about Jed matches. Really, a neat concept to, rather than all or nothing, be able to select those we want to focus on and be able to pull them out of the Jedcom versus thousands and thousands. Sounds like that could eat up a lot of time if we had to manage all of them.
2: That's right. I'm so excited about Jed matches.
0: Well, thanks so much for taking a few extra minutes to uh, share the the news with us here on Genealogy Gems. Thanks,
3: Lisa. Profile America, Sunday, May 19th. The first criminal case in the U.S. in which fingerprint evidence was admitted into court occurred on this date in New York City in 1911. Burglary suspect Cesar Sella was convicted by prints identified by Detective Sergeant Joseph Faroe. The first known crime case solved by fingerprint matching occurred in 1880 in Tokyo, but the unique pattern of each person's fingerprints had been known since ancient Rome. Today, the use of DNA samples from crime scenes is the fastest-growing area of forensic evidence. Advanced crime-solving methods have contributed to a drop in total reported crimes, from 14.5 million in 1990 to 10.6 million as of four years ago. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov.
0: Well, I don't know where the time has gone, but that's it for Genealogy Gems Podcast, episode number 155. It was so fun to get a chance to sit down the microphone and just kind of catch up with you, catch up with all of the good stuff going on in the genealogy world, uh, hearing what you guys have all been up to in your genealogy blogging, and doing a little bit of housekeeping with c- catching up with all of your questions. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can leave a voicemail on the voicemail line, 925-272-4021. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.